You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to M Pavilion. My name is Jen Zielinska, and I am the program manager here at the Pavilion. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the Yalukut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalukut Willem are part of the Bunwarang, one of the five major, no, major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and the elders, past, present, and to the future. Tonight, we are delighted to welcome Rory Hyde back to Melbourne and back to M Pavilion. Rory is Curator of Contemporary Architecture and Urbanism at the Victoria and Albert Museum. To list but a few achievements, Rory has studied architecture at RMT University in Melbourne and was, is Senior Fellow with the University of Melbourne. He was co-host the Architects Weekly radio show, which presented the Australian Pavilion at the 2012 Venice Architecture Biennale. Rory has also worked in the Netherlands with Volume Magazine. The list goes on. Rory most recently was co-curator on the Future Starts Here exhibition at the V&A in London, and we'll be speaking tonight about the future of design. Thanks, Jen. Thank you to M Pavilion for having me. Um, and it's great to be back in town and to see lots of uh, familiar faces, family, neighbours, you know, friends, pets, that sort of thing. Um, I don't have any pictures tonight, so it's going to be all a cappella, but um, try and stick with me. I'm going to try and make it a bit more um, two-way rather than one-way. So we're going to ask lots of questions instead of me just talking. Um, and hopefully try and have a discussion really around the future of technology and our relationship to it and how it shapes us. Um, so, as Jen mentioned, uh, sorry, I'm going to get organised. <clears throat> um, I'm going to talk about The Future Starts Here, which is an exhibition which closed recently at the V&A in London, um, co-curated with Mariana Pestana, so thanks to Mariana um, and her great teamwork. Um, we opened the exhibition with a quote from the philosopher and urbanist Paul Virilio, who says, the invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck. So think about that. The invention of the ship was also the invention of the shipwreck. So with every new technology, every new invention, every new idea, comes with it utopia and dystopia. It comes a positive future and a negative future. The opportunities and the consequences are completely bound together. You don't get to choose one or the other. You get both of them. And that was really the sort of starting point for our approach to this subject of the future is um, if we can't predict or if we don't know what's going to happen next, how do we make sense of that um, imminent world? And how do we evaluate the things that we're making now on, along those terms. So, so really it's a sort of critical reflection or analysis of what we call the evidence of the future. So um, these are all things, objects, products, design things. So it's a, it's a very much an object-driven show in the V&A mould. Um, and we're picking them up, turning them upside down and, and looking at them to try and understand, is this a ship? What, what's the ship aspect of this and what's the shipwreck? What's the opportunities and what are the consequences? Um, so I, I'm going to do 10 questions for the future uh, and 10 objects of the future tonight. Um, but we might start with one sort of 
participatory experiment to see where we all sit on the ship shipwreck uh, continuum. So we'll start with something very um, pedestrian, which you're all familiar with, which is the self-checkout in the supermarket, right? So the, not the person, the self-checkout. And we'll just do a show of hands. This is the scenario. So the supermarket is empty. The, the, the queues are not a consideration. Do you go to the human or to the robot, to the self-checkout? So hands up for the human first. Oh, very humanistic crowd. <laughs> I guess that's why you're not watching the live stream or something. <laughs> and hands up for the robot. Oh, also quite good, actually. Um, mostly in the back row where you won't get noticed or something. <laughs> so this, I think, is a good kind of metric of the, of the opportunities and the consequences of, of, of technology and of, of these objects of the future. So um, we ran a poll with the polling company YouGov, who are probably best known for their work in politics, but also they do marketing and so on. And they surveyed tens of thousands of people from their group on that exact question. So if you walk into a supermarket and so on. And 70% of people went to the robot, is the, is the conclusion for the for UK-wide um, approach to the, the supermarket. And, and for me, that's a sort of, well, I mean, we've got some pretty scary things in the show. We've got drones and you know, self-driving cars and all, all of these things which we ought to be anxious about, artificial intelligence. Um, but for me, that's possibly the scariest thing in the exhibition, which is that um, we are automating all of those tiny little engagements, the, the things which, um, where you're forced to encounter somebody who's different from you, probably somebody who earns less than you, who is on a more precarious contract than you, who is probably from somewhere that you're different to you, who may even be a different colour to you. And if we automate out all of those tiny engagements, can we still hold together as a society? So that, that's a sort of, um, I guess, representative example of what we mean by the ship and the shipwreck. This seemingly innocuous thing which is uh, in every supermarket, in every service station, could be the seed of a civilizational unraveling, <laughs> to put it uh, in hysterical terms. But um, we will embark now on the questions. So, number one, uh, what makes us human? Uh, we introduced the exhibition with a, with a robot. His name is Brett, uh, the Berkeley Robot for Eliminating Tedious Tasks. Uh, it's a robot which does the laundry. Uh, it's got a smiley face on a screen and two arms. It's got uh, a sort of human size, the head and so on. Um, and it's doing something which all of us can do almost without thinking. But if you watch this robot carefully, you realise it's very difficult. Um, it takes about 20 minutes to fold a towel because it's got this um, computer vision analysing the corners. It's trying to work out if it's twisted, it's trying to work out if it's even holding the thing at all. The, you can hear the computer whizzing and the arms moving. And so this, what, what these researchers are trying to, to um, demonstrate is what does a robot look like in a, in a real world environment? So rather than in a car factory where it's doing a very predictable thing, so the car comes along and you do that well, then you do that very 
predictably and every time. What happens when we start to introduce robots into a, um, um, into a messy real-world environment where it needs to determine between the whites and the coloreds and the cleans and the dirties and, and that while it's halfway through its process, you sort of muddle things up by moving the baskets around. So that's what they're trying to... They're not trying to solve laundry, but they are trying to solve robots living with us. So that's, again, another object which somehow points to a future where we're more codependent on these other um, non-human entities, which are doing things which we can recognise. And that's, that's why, why we describe it as a kind of strange mirror. It's very odd to see a robot doing something which you can... doing something which you can do without thinking, that looks like you but, and acts like you, but is very much not you. So that's... Uh, and, I, and hopefully that inspires this question of what makes us human, that we reflect on, upon ourselves. Our second question. We're going to just rattle through these. I'll be done in 10 minutes. Second question is, we are all connected, but do we still feel lonely? And so what we're asking here is, um, and I should say that the entire exhibition is structured in this way. So we don't have sections, we have questions. So underneath each question, we might have 10 or 15 objects, and I'm giving one example. But it's a way, hopefully, of opening up these um, I, the idea of the future and, and helping you to come to your own conclusion rather than us telling you what the future is going to be like. So we're all connected, but do we feel, still feel lonely? Um, and this is where we're looking at um, smart technology, at the internet, at the connected home. Uh, and um, the one example I'll give now is a little robot, again, called Paro. And he is, or she is, a uh, robotic seal designed in Japan very cute, baby seal, big eyes, uh, fluffy little wings, and it's designed to look after the elderly. So uh, Japan, as we know, a rapidly aging country, that, um, there's not enough, um, well, carers to look after the elderly, and it's, a, it's a also a country that's quite uh, opposed to immigration and other ways that we've solved this in other Western countries. Um, and so they've invented a robot that will look after your uh, grandparents. Um, and on the one hand, it's very cute, and, and if you see it in action, you can see how therapeutic it can be. And it's a I'm told it's particularly useful for um, cases of dementia, where even an encounter with a, with a human carer can be a source of stress. So to, to sort of create a, a, a different kind of engagement, which, is, which doesn't have a social expectation in return that you might have from a, from a seal or a robot rather than a human, can be a great alleviator of uh, anxiety and stress. So there's, so there's a, a sort of unique new scenario that this fits, that is can't, it's not simply replacing the care of a human, but it cr creates a new form of care. But all of that said, it's a, it's a strange idea, isn't it, to, um, to create a robot to look after old people. <laughs> and I wonder again, what, you know, what is the trajectory that that takes us on? And, and what does it say about our own um, values and so on? I don't want this to be completely negative because, as I say, there is a um, you know, hugely beneficial scenario that this operates in. We, we went and visited a care home in South London that had a bunch of these, um, for, uh, really for um, cost-saving reasons. Uh, you know, there's been huge cuts to social care funding and so on in the UK. Uh, and they, they identified that around 4 p.m. we have this kind of peak 
moment where um, things get people get hungry or they get frazzled and actually we don't have enough people to keep everyone happy. And that's where they pull out the paros and they pop them on people's laps and everyone's sort of happy and it allows the, the carers to jump around between people. So you, you, that's for me, is that it's a complementary example rather than a replacement. But still, uh, where to next? So, um, on to the next question. Does democracy still work? Uh, when we first uh, phrased that about two and a half years ago, before Trump, before Brexit, we thought, ah, come on, that's just like a hollow provocation, isn't it? Like, let's grow up, stop being such, you know, lefty agitators. Um, but then actually it started to <laughs> seem like a serious question we should be asking. Um, when, when the wrong people are voted in, does democracy really work? And I got a great um, email from a visitor who said, of course democracy fucking works. Just because you lost doesn't mean it's broken. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, so obviously triggered someone. Um, the example of an object here we have is uh, the pussy power hat. So this is a pink hat with ears, looks sort of like a cat, um, knitted uh, from open source plans distributed across the internet uh, in opposition to the election of Donald Trump. So hundreds of thousands of these hats were knitted uh, in the US and they were worn the day after Trump's inauguration uh, for the Women's March in Washington. So. Just to talk about the hat first and then the movement, um, it's, a, it's a very sort of future object, if you like. It, it has a particular creator, but there is no ideal hat. Um, the design was then circulated in an open way. Um, the material, the uh, pink wool needed to make this hat was quickly um, used up in Washington. So people had to improvise and redesign and make it out of other material. So there is no sort of one ideal hat, if you like, um, and it's, and then, so that's the, the object um, to begin with, and then it was adopted by various other women's movements around the world, so it has, again, this sort of second life online um, as a recombinant object, and, and related to the movement, I find it very interesting because it's, a, it's an object of the losers, in a way. These are people who are um, showing their resistance to a vote that they just didn't agree with. Um, but and, and so you, you would imagine that these people are somehow disempowered or they're, they're not, um, they haven't been empowered through the political process, but through the image of hundreds of thousands of these hats, they have a certain power and they, and there's, and they become harder to ignore through that unity and through that sea of pink. So I, I think that you can see how even when your vote may not have worked, that these sorts of design objects can have a different sort of power and they, and they demand to be recognised. So that's also something which is now in the v collection um, and we've been working with the um, woman who uh, came up with the idea who knitted one for, our, for the museum. Our next um, question is, are cities for everyone? So we've started off at the scale of the body, the home, we've looked at politics and now we're going up a scale again to look at um, cities and really the, the way that we design um, cities and how they shape the way we live together and how they shape the way we make decisions and so on. So the, one of the sort of key objects here in this section is the driverless car. 
Uh, we worked with Volkswagen, who lent us one of their um, prototypes of a driverless car, which was really looking at um, the way the interior is reconfigured when there is no driver, and in particular looking at what they call emotional intelligence. So if we have, if we're familiar with artificial intelligence, which is the, you know, autonomous thinking of a, of a machine, then emotional intelligence is, it might be the, um, the sort of layers of trust that we would have with that machine. So, so would you put your kids in that car with no driver and have, them, have that car drop them off at school? These are the sorts of questions that we were asking with that um, particular object. But it's also useful to zoom out and think about the driverless car in some of the ways that it's been framed. Because it's, I, I like it because it's kind of like an object of philosophy in the sense that it doesn't really exist. We don't have them on the streets. But somehow there's been so much written about them and so many um, scenarios imposed upon this object which doesn't, which doesn't yet, yet exist. I mean, it's, it's been credited with um, saving hundreds of, uh, hundreds of thousands of lives from traffic deaths. It's been credited with solving traffic problems. Uh, it's been credited with, you know, destroying the idea of ownership. It's been credited with, if they're electric, saving the climate crisis. So there's sort of all of these ships or all of these positive futures been imposed on this technology which doesn't yet exist. Um, and yet some people also claim entirely the opposite, that actually it's going to make traffic worse. It's going to um, further exaggerate the dispersion of our cities, um, of urban sprawl. And so all of these things we don't really um, know. So we tried to sort of bring it back down to earth again and look at two particular examples. So one of them uh, was framed by MIT in a very famous um, study they did, which was called The Moral Machine, where they were uh, uh, trying to answer the question, if a car is autonomous, if therefore it makes its own decisions, who should decide what those decisions are? And in particular, what should those decisions be in the case of an accident? So if, if the car is um, out of control or its sensors go offline for a moment, should it run over the pedestrian or kill the driver? <laughs> And this is the way that, the, and, and you have to click on the screen to decide those scenarios. Do you kill three passengers or three pedestrians? Do you kill three old people or three young people? You know, there's this sort of list of um, questions thrown at you as a, as on this online database, which, of which there are no good answers. There are, there are only tragedies. And so it's quite a shocking uh, experience. And, and we countered that with a, with a real-world example, which is in um, Detroit, they've introduced driverless cars, um, in particular to replace the um, pickup and, de and delivery routes for um, elderly. And these are cars which just go really slow. <laughs> so they go about 15 miles an hour, and if you're not in a hurry and you're just going down to buy some milk or to say hello to someone, it's, it's not a problem if it takes you another 10 minutes. So somehow by taking the speed out of it, by reconsidering what the car could be, instead of a complete replacement of current cars, which go fast, which are very hard, which are very dangerous and so on, um, and instead they sort of trundle along, they've got big wheels, you can see them, imagine them sort of rolling across the lawns here, um, you know, like friendly camels or something, you can just crawl on top of. Then this whole um, moral question that um, MIT, the whole, their whole framing of it, we can somehow just run around. And I think that's the sort of um, way of thinking about these new technologies that's really needed, is not to take them on surface value, not to take them 
on the way that these companies or institutions present them to us, but to sort of reimagine what their possibilities are when we re recombine them with uh, or ask different questions of them. So that's the that's our answer to the moral dilemma of decision making of driverless cars: is they will go extremely slowly. Uh, the next question is um, we asked, uh, which is one of the sillier ones, to be honest. Uh, is Edward Snowden a hero or a traitor? So it's quite fun to write that in very large letters hang, hanging up in, in the V&A. Um, and, and if you are not familiar with this story, Edward Snowden, of course, uh, was the um, military contractor in the US who leaked um, hundreds of millions of uh, documents to WikiLeaks. Um, sorry, not to WikiLeaks, to The Guardian and to The New York Times, um, which showed that um, our internet providers, Google, Facebook, Apple and so on, were funneling all of our user data to the government. So he really revealed that there was an entire surveillance state at work which we didn't know about um, and which could be used in a sort of, uh, well, we're not sure how that could be used. Um, so really the question we're asking there is, should the internet be open or closed? Should the internet be a place which is surveilled and monitored and controlled or should it be a place which is free and experimental and, and so on? And we thought it was a silly question because, of course, we thought it should be open. Um, but I gave some tours, for instance, to, like, you know, trustees. <laughs> they would say things like, well, of course he's a traitor. Don't be silly. Okay, let's keep moving. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but the example that I, I give here is, um, is the, the biggest thing we ever put into the museum so it's an uh, aircraft uh, with a wingspan of 45 meters, so the same as a, a 747, uh, and it's designed by Facebook. So it's called the Aquila drone. Uh, it was a prototype aircraft by Facebook, um, which uh, had that huge wingspan, but, but which the four people here could lift. So it, it only weighed about 300 kilos. It flies up in the stratosphere. We had a working prototype uh, in the gallery. Uh, and beams the internet down to the, um, what Mark Zuckerberg calls the next billion. So that's the whole of Africa, the whole of India. Um, the next billion people will be connected through these aircraft. Um, probably hundreds, probably thousands of those planes circling around for months at a time, solar panelled, um, beaming the internet down to an entire continent that has um, poor infrastructure. So. Um, it's sort of hard to uh, imagine an internet company making an aircraft of that sort of vision or ambition. Um, and, and for us, it was the perfect ship and shipwreck, this thing which at once presents so much opportunity and, and possibility, but also so much dread. Um, so you can imagine the, the uses of this. Uh, you can get on the internet, you can start a business, you can have access to trading and to um, information and education and healthcare and, and all of these things which are on the plus side. And on the other side of the scales, you have to join Facebook. <laughs> and we know what happens with Facebook is that they are, and you know, Zuckerberg himself has been hauled in front of Senate committee after Senate committee this past year for the role that Facebook has played in um, spreading misinformation and so on. So do we, on the one hand, give opportunities to these hundreds of millions of people who, who um, are, do not have the internet, but do we also help elect the next dictator in some country in Africa? So, so for me, 
this is really a line ball. I'm not sure whether we should have these planes in the world or not. Um, I mean, it happened that while the show was on, they pulled the plug on this program, so we don't get to see what happens when Facebook have drones. Um, uh, and I think that's partly because the company m felt too extended. It had too many um, exposed flanks for a company under fire. But still, um, uh, it will happen in some guise or another, I'm sure. All right, we're nearly there. We have three more questions to go. Um, so we've done the home, we've done what we call the public, so these are the spaces where we make decisions, the um, politics, cities and networks. Uh, and now we're looking up another scale to the scale of the planet. So we asked the question, should the planet be a design project? And what we're getting at here is um, if we have unintentionally designed the planet through climate change and so on, um, is it now time to take responsibility for those changes and to intentionally design the planet? Should we be geoengineering? Should we be sp spreading reflective particles in the atmosphere? Should we be sucking carbon out of the air? Should we be doubling down on, on nuclear power and these things which have a sort of dubious status? But the one um, example I'll give is a project called Revive and Restore, which is basically Jurassic Park. So they are working to revive and restore the passenger pigeon, which went extinct 100 years ago. Um, and apparently it, it occupied quite a critical ecological niche in the sense that those pigeons would disrupt tree canopies and create opportunities for many other species. So their argument is that if we could reintroduce the, um, the passenger pigeon through extracting its DNA and having it um, be born in an actual pigeon, which is that, so that's how they want to do it. <clears throat> if we could reintroduce the passenger pigeon, we could create more opportunities for bees, for um, birds, for other species, for all the things which live off those, um, off the bees and so on. So it's quite a, a clever idea, but we've all seen Jurassic Park. <laughs> so... Um, do, is that the, uh, how do we feel about intervening in nature in such, a in such a specific way? And where do you draw the line about what's, um, you know, what's constructive and, and what's not? And how do we really know the implications of reintroducing a, a species? So I, for this one, I'm quite clear. I think this is a great idea. Bring back the passenger pigeon and other extinct species and, and the like. But it's a, it's, it feels like playing God. It feels like a, um, a, another, uh, and you know, should we be trusted? We're the ones who broke the planet. Should we be trusted to fix it? Why would, they, why would we get the keys back after we crashed the car? <laughs> so, so we're hoping to kind of provoke those um, uncomfortable decisions around our, our role and relationship and our custodianship of the, of the planet in this, in this section. From there we look we look up, we look beyond the planet, we look into space, and we ask the question, second last, if Mars is the answer, then what is the question? So that's a reframing of Cedric Price's question, uh, if technology is the answer, what's the question? And what we're, we're really, it's directed to quite a small audience, directed to people like Elon Musk, who, who's the um, you know, tech entrepreneur behind Tesla and um, SpaceX and so on, uh, and he says, I want to die on Mars, but not on impact. So he's dead set on starting a colony up there by the, time, by the end of his life. 
and uh, that's where he wants. That's what he's putting all his money into. And we're kind of asking, why do you want to do that, Elon? What's motivating you? Is it your sort of because you've got too much money, or or because you've given up on Earth, or you know what? Are, what are your motivations really? What is space for? You know, is space a, a place? And we've seen already in the sort of brief history of space travel and exploration many different motives. You know, it began as a sort of um, you know political one-upmanship between Russia and the U.S. Uh, it then became a and it had envir huge environmental consequences. Once we saw that picture of the whole Earth, all of the Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and all of these environmental uh, movements started up immediately in the, in the tail of that. We, of course, use it for research. Uh, we, of course, use it for... Um, but now, and now we use it for commerce and uh, for uh, colonisation. Um, the object we show here is the incredible thing, and this, you really have to see this to believe it, because it's a real company. It's in Japan, and they are selling shooting stars on demand. So they have a satellite <coughs> currently spinning around the Earth, which is... Uh, we went to their um, factory, and they, it looks like this game Hungry Hippos. <laughs> you know, where you have to tap the thing frantically to catch the little balls. So they've got this sort of rotor stuffed with these little balls, tiny little pellets, and the satellite's flying around in space, and it will spit a pellet out in a very accurate way so that you can then... It's visible from Earth as it burns up on its re-entry to uh, the atmosphere. So, and and they haven't used it yet, or it's not commercially available, but they are testing it. And so it's... The, and they say, well, yeah, for the opening of the Olympics, you could schedule your shower of shooting stars. Uh, and if you're Elon Musk, probably it's the sort of thing you have for your birthday um, or any other major events in between. But it's, for us, it sort of felt like this incredible hubris that, you know, the, sh the stars are, the, are, the, are surely beyond reach. These things which are ineffable, which are, uh, you know, so of the heavens, literally. And now we can order one with an app <laughs> to disintegrate on demand. Um, which felt, again, this amazing um, responsibility. And, of course, it's just a pellet, but still it surely gives us this outsized sense of, um, of self, which uh, is maybe not healthy at this point in time. And now for the final question, and really the most important of all, who wants to live forever? So th this is where the section where we had... We sort of corralled together all of these strange uh, inventions of life extension and um, preservation that's coming out of Silicon Valley and, the, and these um, people who are determined to, to live, to, to witness what they call the singularity. So this is where you might be able to upload your brain onto a computer and therefore live forever, um, which, is, which they claim is coming within the next um, 10 to 15 years, which I'm told is like tech. Uh, shorthand for we have no idea, um, but the particular object that I, that we focus on here uh, is the cryonics standby kit. So, cryonics is a, is again the, probably the best bet you have if you really want to live forever, uh, and that's where you have your body frozen when you die, uh, in a particular way, so that you can be reawoken in the future. Of course, it hasn't worked for anyone yet, but it doesn't stop people trying. There are many companies selling this as a service. 
Um, we worked with one uh, particular company called Alcor, who are the market leader. They have about 1,000 people in the fridge in um, Nevada. Um, and we, we also had a, uh, one of our advisors on the exhibition who has a great job title. His, his uh, name is Anders Sandberg, and his job is the Professor of the Future of Humanity at Oxford University. So uh, he's, he's got a big brain and thinking deep into the future. And he'd signed up for uh, Cryonix. And we asked him, why? Why would you, what, you know, this is surely nuts. Like, why, you're a smart guy. Don't, why did you fall for it? And he says, well, I like life. And if there's a chance that I can have some more of it, then I'll pay for that. I'll, go, I'll sign up for that. That sounds like a good idea. And we sort of looked at him kind of skeptically, like, yeah, okay, that's what you feed the rest, isn't it? But, like, tell us for real. Uh, and he said, um, okay, so I have this dinner every year with my boss, Nick, who's, you know, he's really, like, his boss as the professor of humanity. He started the whole institute. Uh, and each year we, we come around to this same discussion about cryonics and why hadn't we signed up and, like, surely it's a rational thing to do. And one year we realised that Lady Gaga had signed up. And we said, well, we can't be less rational than Lady Gaga. So then they doubled down and went and gave them their 200 grand or whatever it costs to, to have your body frozen. Um, and he's interesting because he, he, he's ha just having his head done. <laughs> which I think, which is just uh, fantastic. And he says, well, look, you know, the whole premise of cryonics is that we'll be able to recreate body parts by growing them and therefore you can sort of replace all of your dead and, di and dying tissues, you know, one after the other. So if they can do that, then they can make me a new body and I can save some money now. <laughs> um, and, and, and again, cryonics is one of those things which is often spoken about in hushed tones as, as, a, as a new form of philosophy, um, when actually it has very sort of real-world consequences. So, so the way of, of communicating this project was to... Um, show what we, what's called the cryonic standby kit. So this is what you would have delivered to your house once you sign up for cryonics. Uh, and it's, it's a very, uh, yeah, very numerous set of medical instruments and an instruction leaflet which you need to give to your uh, designated cryonics enactor. So when you die, your children or your fa other family members or your partner or your neighbours or whoever, will need to put on the blue gloves, um, open up the instruction book. There's no time for tears. You've got to do straight into this. Uh, put, inject them with this medicine directly into the heart, and then which will stop the cells from crystallising as you're frozen. Put them into a huge coffin-type thing, start pouring ice water onto the body, and then do chest compressions on that body and lung stimulation for the next two hours to, as you cool the body down uh, gently before the company comes to collect the uh, body from your house. So we showed all of these uh, objects required to enact this um, procedure and the list of instructions needed to do it. So hopefully it, it um, kind of shocked you into the reality of what we're talking about here, which is freezing your body after you die in order to live forever. Um, but just so we didn't end on a, such a negative note, um, really the whole message of the exhibition was that 
um, the future is up to you, that, the, that we all have agency in shaping the future and that somehow, although it seems like the future is um, dictated from on high by Apple or by governments or by um, whoever, um, in, a, in a way that just sort of lands on top of us, whether we like it or not, that actually you have a huge part to play in shaping that future. So, th so throughout the exhibition, we're trying to show projects and, and give you ideas which um, uh, show you where you can pull, show you where you have some leverage in shifting that um, future. So we, in the sort of final declaration of your agency, we, we did a little performative um, project where we had written in reflective letters, the future is, and people were able to pick up uh, individual letters and complete that sentence. So the future is green, the future is bright, the future is scary, the future is um, terrifying, the future is black or whatever you like, the future is female. Um, and normally I have some very cute pictures of people's uh, words that they've made. Um, and in particular, there's this one, which is a, which is a woman who's propping up her baby <laughs> underneath these letters with the with the um, phrase "the future is her." So she ha she had great uh, hope in the next generation, um, and and I think that's the really the message is despite all of these scary things that we there is still much to play for. There is still much to be shaped. And um, thanks for coming to night and I'm sorry that you missed the exhibition and my pictures. <laughs>
200%. But it was, again, no technology, um, just self-organization and, and, um, and collective responsibility. So we, ha and we had lots of examples like that. I mean, tonight I've focused most, mostly on technology, but... Um, you are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.